Hello, I'm Brittany Wilson. I'm Nia Wasink, and you're listening to The The Nonprofit Nonprofit Reframe. Reframe. Together, Nia and I have over 30 years of nonprofit experience. We've worked the program side, the business side, and everything in between. We are reframing the nonprofit experience by challenging the status quo, because we know that nonprofits and their staff are undervalued, under-resourced, and unrelenting. Welcome back to the Nonprofit Reframe. Happy Monday. It is still October 5th. (laughs) (laughs) We have stopped time. We are recording this two weeks in advance uh, for your listening pleasure um, so we can take next Monday off. So we'll be releasing this on October 19. Hope y'all are having a great October 19 or weeks following. Which means that by the time you listen to this, we will have had two weeks of our costume contest. That's very true. And while neat. While Nia knows what she is going to be already next week, I don't. So I'm so curious um, what I'm going to come up with and then what <laughs> and then what everybody thinks who's winning the contest. <laughs> oh gosh. How is spooky season treating you so far, Brittany? I love it. I will tell you that we got our Halloween decorations up earlier than we ever have this year. And yeah, well, I think it has something to do with COVID and just being home more. So I'm trying to look for the silver linings and maybe that's one of them during this time. Mm -hmm. So what about you? I I don't do decorations. (laughs) Man. If only you were married to my husband, he would absolutely love it. I, I'm told that I have to downsize. So there were, we took them all down from our attic and there were eight tubs. Oh my God. That's incredible. Yeah. That's a lot. I have like a fall yarn wreath that I'll put on the front door. Call it good. Maybe a pumpkin. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. This is my jam, though. I love. Halloween. I know you gotta you gotta go all out when it's the thing you love. I know, and the girls are just so stinking excited. Um, I mean, I got to hear extensively about a pillow from one of your daughters this weekend. So, if oh a pillow gosh. can get her that excited, I can't imagine what the whole kit and caboodle will do. Yeah, a Halloween a Halloween pillow. So <laughs> now I've got to find another bin to stuff that into. <laughs> um and then hey this is coming out on the 19th which means we will be less than a week away from big 10 kickoff which means we'll be about a month away from when our teams play each other i know i know of which and we don't have to go down this road but i would just like to point out since we are both big 10 fans that the president did take credit for the Big Ten being I know. back. Fuck off. <laughs> I was talking to one of my other friends who went to a different Big Ten school who's a huge football fan, and we were both like, we don't believe in them going back. Like, we think it's right, dumb. Right, totally, totally. And we're 100%. still going to watch. Absolutely. <laughs> which is awful. We're just, like, we're giving them ratings, which just justifies them going back. 
I mean, you know, it's not a secret. I love all things Americana. And American football is absolutely one of them. And so I am also in a fantasy football league this year when the NFL is such a shit show. I mean, every week there's a new team that has players out and then that turns into a bye week for them on fantasy and they have to reschedule. I mean, it's just like, why are we, we're so desperate for some sort of entertainment when this is clearly not working. One of my friends a couple weeks ago was like, I can't believe I'm admitting this, but I've gotten really into marble racing. What? What's marble, marble racing? racing? Like you can find all of these YouTube videos of marble racing and it now has a cult following because of COVID. <laughs> Is that like cup stacking? Probably like in the same vein, at least. I've never even heard of that. I'll have to check that out. Maybe I'll, I'll find a good video and share it on our socials. <laughs> I know. I came home last night and my dad was watching TV and he's like, my Browns are on. My Browns are playing. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I know. Well, and I just feel so bad for all those kids. I know a lot of them want to be playing and want to be back, but man, it's scary. Yeah. Just can't do it. I know. But uh, Ohio State will still crush the Wolverines this year, and you all will hear about it when it happens. I actually have not been following any of the preseason. Anything Like, usually, by early August, I'm tuned in, you know, how are recruits looking, What what's camp been like? I have no idea this year. <laughs> I don't even know if we're playing you home or away. That's a great question. Oh, my gosh. I just, I don't really know either. Well, just for all of our listeners to know, our teams play each other uh, Thanksgiving weekend every year, which is such a bummer because we just can't see but each they, other that week. But I think they might have changed it this week, this year. No, I think we got that still. I'm going to look right now because this one we can't wait for. <laughs> I just think it's hysterical how into <gasps> football we are. You're when... right. We play on the 12th. December 12th. Yeah. It's different. Oh. At Ohio State. Goddamn. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah. Which we get season tickets, but we um, sold them back for this year. You were given that option. I mean, none of us live in Ohio anyways, but. So we missed that year. That's a bummer. Okay. I digress. <laughs> <laughs> for a second, I forgot we were on a podcast. <laughs> And the worst part is, I had totally tuned out. I don't even know what you were just saying. (laughs) Oh, you know, like I said, we always wanted this to be as if you were in a room with us while we were talking. And And that's exactly what you are. So sorry. Remember, we we had fan mail that came in. We got to talk about this real quick. Oh, yeah. We got fan mail. We got fan mail, first of all. Yay! From the East Coast, someone we don't know. Yeah, I have um, no idea how they found us. It absolutely made our week. So, you know, if you're in the mood to send some fan mail, please do, because we love to hear from you. But I love that he said, you know, I started listening to your podcast, and at first, 
y'all were just talking a lot, and I didn't know if I was really going to learn anything. <laughs> we are so glad that he stuck with it and ended up actually getting something out of it, enough that he sent us this email. So that was great. Yeah. Um, and actually, I forgot to tell you, we got more fan mail this morning. Wait, what? Yes. Um, uh, a listener, another one that we don't know, we don't think they are tied into us whatsoever. Um, just listened to our episode on benefits, got fired up, and sent us a book recommendation, Making Motherhood Work by Caitlin Collins. Nice. Thank you. So um, we'll share that on our socials this current week. So um, it ties into that benefits episode, which means... Y'all should keep emailing us. It's great content for us to share with folks. You've got awesome ideas. And I'm just going to put out there because um, if you don't know it, you should. And Nia is 20 times cooler than I am. And this comes about, uh, it comes up a lot in our friendship. For example, when she has to teach me what cameo is. (laughs) (laughs) Because I had no idea that this thing existed. Um, It's really kind of opened my world now. I have a whole list of people that I want her to buy cameos for to say happy birthday to me. But, um, you know, I'm going to go ahead and just say uh, we'll offer that too, a cameo. (laughs) Actually, you know, you all have a um, staff retreat coming up. You want a little rah-rah for a small fee? You can get a personalized shout-out from the nonprofit Reframe. There you go. We were joking about what that would be like, and some of our friends just shook their heads and said, get out of here. That's ridiculous. <laughs> right up there with getting nonprofit Reframe tattoos, what you want, and I adamantly refuse. Uh, just... Stay tuned, people. Stay tuned. Hashtag podcast goals. <laughs> Brittany, what are we actually going to be talking about this week? We are talking about capital fundraising. Capital campaigns. Mm-hmm. So, Nia, what has your experience been with capital campaigns? Oh, uh, varied. Um, so in my life as a consultant, I, uh, have helped do some feasibility studies, um, which is the process by which, um, typically an external consultant will help identify your readiness. Um, and that means having the systems in place, the policies, the, uh, internal structures in place to execute a campaign, but also garnering buy-in and feedback from key stakeholders and donors to determine what a reasonable level for a capital campaign is. Love feasibility studies. Actually, one of my most favoritest things to do. Uh, I just, I think I like that assessment piece. So like digging in and looking at the data um, all the way up to, you know, actually managing campaigns, helping coach organizations through them. So for those that are listening that maybe are not familiar with capital campaigns, what are they? Well, they should go back because I know we talked about this at one point because I had to pull out the definition and make sure I was right. But in broad strokes, a capital campaign is to fund a large acquisition purchase of some sort. It could be equipment. It could be a building. It could be renovations. 
but it's something big. Um, so it's meant to be kind of this one-time big push for the new thing. Yeah. And I've been part of them where they've been new construction and just like you said, um, where they've been renovations, but to uh, property, to yeah. a, a capital expense. Yeah. Have you been a part of anything that was more unique than that? Um, I was involved in an equipment campaign um, where like a medical organization was trying to purchase some big equipment for the hospital. Um, also been part of like combined endowment capital campaigns, uh, which has been interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, like there are a lot of hybrid models, especially today of how exactly you create a capital campaign. Um, it's, it's less common that it's just this one thing. Yeah. Yeah. So capital campaigns, depending on how big the campaign is, and they can be gajillions of dollars, right? Gajillions. They could be very, very large. Um, I just, I think about universities and hospitals that do these ginormous capital campaigns, um, but they can take years and years and years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, kind of the, the hallmarks of a capital campaign are that they are time limited uh, they're above and beyond the operating budget. Um, they're multi-year, so you really leverage multi-year pledges. Um, mm -hmm. And they typically require like some sort of committee, like some concerted effort to happen. It's not just going to be part of your annual campaign and you're like, oh, yeah, we're just throwing a capital campaign in there. It, it's a, it's a to-do. Right. Uh, though I've definitely been at organizations where they've tried to do that. Yeah. Just throw a little capital campaign in at the same time. Well, well why not? It's easier that way. <laughs> um, and they usually have different phases to them, too. Yeah. Where you're trying to work with your donor base and raise a certain percentage of it. And so maybe it's in the silent, quiet phase. Um, you're also trying to potentially get money from foundations and through different grantors uh, and then potentially have a m more public phase to kind of cap it off, bring the public in. P everybody can be a part of it at many different levels. Um, so they're really involved, I guess is my point. Yes. Yeah. A lot of work, a lot of effort, but hopefully with a good reward. Yeah. So this came up we decided to do this because um, we've talked a lot in the last six months about grantors and funders and funding practices and ridiculous applications and all these restrictions and these hoops that we have to jump through for grant dollars. And I have been, uh, through my work, uh, we have been applying for capital funding and it's like a whole nother level of ridiculousness. Dealing with all of the different grant applications is ridiculous. Like, I feel like there's even less consistency in capital grants than there are in general operating every day, going to apply annually to the kind those foundation kind of grants. Well, there's some funders who refuse to be the first. Oh, God. 
And then those who have to wait till you get a certain percentage, but not over another percentage of your campaign goal achieved. Right, because there's also people who don't want to be the last. There's people who will only fund up to a certain percent. Yep. So you have to create this map of who, what their restriction is and who you can apply to when in the campaign, which is so crazy. So we had one who would not be the first one. But we had to have 30% raised before they would give. Mm -hmm. And then we had another one who wanted to be the last one, one of the last ones. So come to us when you're almost done and we'll help put the cherry on top, (laughs) so to speak. And then we had another one who will only fund up to 50% of the project, which is considerable. Of course, yeah. But... But no more than that. So you got to figure out. And you know, the project costs are constantly fluctuating. Mm-hmm. So you're having to reevaluate, well, what is 50%? And have we hit that yet? And can we, you know, ask for more? Um, I just find it exhausting. Yeah. Like for those of you who haven't been through a capital campaign, think about like your traditional grants calendar, right? Like you've got your deadlines to apply, your deadlines for reports. Maybe you even have in there who you're getting program restricted grants from now your capital grant calendar is totally different because it could be on a deadline it could be based on a percentage it could be based on something totally different and so it's this constant monitoring of like are we now eligible can we apply to them today are now are they interested in what we're doing it's exhausting well and it could be all of those things it could be look we're not going you can't apply to us until you have 30% raised, but here are the only two times during the year that you can apply to us. Right. So, so then you're like, okay, well, yeah, can we raise $30,000 by the first deadline? Or 30%, not 30,000, 30% by the first deadline? Shit, no, we can't. All right, can we do it by the next deadline? But by then, they're going to be one of the last funders, and then maybe they don't want to fund. I mean, it's... It's so, so tiring. And um, I think it's hard because I don't think particularly board members recognize how nuanced it is. Oh, gosh. And so when you're constantly having to report back to your board on progress and who have you applied to and who haven't and yada, yada, it gets confusing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we also, like... I find that capital grants are more likely to have additional restrictions, not just like this is only for capital, but like additional conditions, I should say, of the grant. Yes. Must be brick and mortar. Can't be for supplies or something like that. I don't know. Or if you sell the building in the next five years, here's what yes. you have to do and you have to get back this percentage. and it, or we get the first right of refusal mm-hmm. if you sell it. Yeah, yeah, it comes with a lot of different strings that make people nervous, and rightfully so. Oh, totally. Yeah. Um, I just lost my thought. It was it was going to be a good one, so just know. Yeah. Well, here, well, I know with the city of Boulder, when you get capital funding from them, um, 
they, in essence, like from their perspective, consider it a partially owned building by the city of Boulder. And so you have to then do um, reports for them. I forget how often it is, but kind of like in perpetuity. So every three years they come back and ask for a report on it for money that they've given to build the building maybe 30 years ago, you know? So I I think that those reporting requirements can be ongoing and extensive as well. Mm -hmm. And then like there are the corporate funders who want naming rights, right? Right. The Wells Fargo conference room, the, the sit go bathroom, you know, there, there is a, a local family that loves to do bathrooms. Um, and it's to the point now where a lot of local nonprofits know that. And so they create naming opportunities just for that family, which I think is so funny. That's hysterical. <laughs> That's hysterical. But naming is like, oh, it's such a pain in the ass in and of itself. Well, yeah. And then you got to find something that, okay, well, if this room is this big and this room is this big and what is the cost of the naming rights for each one? I mean, it's just kind of arbitrarily created. I mean, it all goes into um, a strategy for raising the funds, but uh, it's just kind of fascinating. And some people don't care, right? Some people are like, I don't really need it to be named. And other people care a lot. Yes. And they want it to be done in a certain way, you know, maybe through like a piece of art or maybe through um, a plaque or, you know, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. So I was I was thinking through some of the capital campaigns I've been involved with, either on staff or now as a consultant. Um, and I was thinking of some of the big issues I often see. So would love to hear if you have any. But the top ones that come to mind, first off, not having a big enough contingency fund built into the budget. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I don't know why nonprofits think they're somehow exempted from construction overages. But it's right. going to be more expensive than you think. Just build that in because right. then you can fundraise for it. Right. Yeah, because once – sorry, I'm cutting mm-hmm. you off. But once – that's a good point too. Once it's built, then you're in a debt reduction campaign. And that's a lot harder. Nobody wants to get money to debt reduction. Nope. Right. Number two is actually on that same point, not having enough cash – and not going for a bridge loan in the meantime, right? Like mm-hmm. there is definitely a thing about once you have a physical space, even if it's just like you got beams up and you can kind of start to visualize, not like you're actually operating it. But once you have something that donors can see and experience and the community is driving by, the campaign gets easier. It goes from conceptual to tangible. And you often need a bridge loan to get you there. And there are ones specifically for nonprofits, really low interest rates, right? Like with the assumption that your capital campaign is going to come in, get the rest of it. But the, you, can't, you can't guarantee the timing of a donor's gift, especially because capital campaigns leverage multi-year pledges. So yeah, I'm going to give you right. $100,000, but it's, you're going to get it 20K a year over the next five years. Right. That doesn't help with your immediate construction needs. And then the third big issue, I mean, I could, I could have a list of 20. I'm going to keep it to three because this is a 30-minute podcast. The third big issue I often see is that they don't have proper policies in place, whether that's gift acceptance, 
naming and Mm -hmm. unnaming, but they don't protect their organization. They're so excited to go after the money that they don't think about what could go wrong. And quite frankly, a lot can go wrong. Yeah. Yeah, those are all really great points. Um, You know, honestly, I think one of my biggest issues in the few capital campaigns that I've worked on has been around the budget. Mm Mm-hmm. So great point talking about the contingency fund uh, to add that in there. It's just that it's constantly moving, right? It's not static by any means. And what gets hard is when um, your goal then changes. And right, a lot of that has to do with what you're talking about of not knowing when funding is coming in. So we've maybe applied to all these different grants and that could potentially be X amount of money, but we don't really know how much we're getting from each of them. And so, but we've got immediate cash needs, which again goes back to your bridge loan thing. We've got immediate cash needs. So we need to fundraise this much now. And it's like this urgency and, you know, depending on the campaign and, and the build, the project, you have all these different people involved, right? You might have investors involved. You might, you have obviously contractors involved and maybe you have a project manager who's managing the whole thing involved and everybody has these uh, different needs, but what rises to the top is always money. Always. So it's like, well, when are we going to get this money? Well, when are we, we got to get this money. We need this money now. In order to be able to close, we need X amount of money by Y date. And you're like, uh, okay, thanks for telling me four months before Y date. Like that's not possible. Like that's not realistic. And everybody goes into panic mode over it. So I think that that's why it is so important to spend time on the front end Mm -hmm. to do all that preparation, to build out your fundraising calendar, your strategy, your different phases. Um, Because it's when you kind of rush into it that it gets super stressful. Yeah, yeah. Real fast. You're totally right. Um, Which actually made me think of my number four. (laughs) There we go. Um, is not investing enough time around the planning um, and even execution of the capital campaign, right? Like feasibility studies are incredibly important. I cannot overstate how important something like that is. Not only are you going to get really important information about what's needed for success, you're going to start to garner buy-in from your donors. You know, if you're going to go and ask a donor for a really significant gift, and this is the first time they're hearing about the campaign, I have a yep. real strong feeling that that's not going to go well. Um, but I've also been involved where they've they've paid for a feasibility study or, or some sort of planning, and they've had this period of time with all the support, but then they didn't budget in ongoing coaching and support. And that drops and, you know, the development director goes back to her annual giving plans and the grants she has to write and all these other things. And the executive director goes back to all these other things. A capital campaign takes significant time and energy. And so much time. And you're probably going to need additional support. Maybe you hire a position that is actually going to maintain with your organization long term after the campaign. Maybe it's somebody external. But to assume that your existing structure is going to be able to maintain your ongoing operational fundraising and a capital campaign at the same time is ridiculous and it's going to burn people out. 
Amen. Like, I cannot emphasize what you just said enough. That, oh my gosh, (laughs) resonates so loudly with me. I've been there. You're absolutely right. It takes so much staff time. And, you know, with the feasibility study, they cost a lot of money. Mm -hmm. But they're that important. And, I mean, I think that that's the question you have to ask. Like, if you can't even afford the feasibility study. Yeah. How, how, yeah. Yeah, you're probably not actually equipped to do a full multi-million dollar capital campaign then, too. Right. I mean, I've done feasibility studies where I've come back and said, actually, it's not feasible. You have? Yeah. And And it, was it just not feasible at that level? Like, well, you're trying to do a $10 million build and you really probably need to be shooting for half that or just like, this isn't going to work at all. It was, yeah, it was, it was more like a proportional, like you want 5 million, you can do 500,000. Um, <gasps> so it was like, it was such a, a reduction of what they wanted and needed that it, it meant that going that route didn't make sense. And so they were able to pivot, actually, and do a renovation campaign on their existing building. Um, But what was really great was it allowed them opportunity to grow their programs and evaluation of the programs into spaces Mm -hmm. that they hadn't been in and would actually set them up to be successful long term. So it it really, like, it. I was so nervous, right, going in to be like, you can't do this. The money is not there. Right. Like, I don't see this being successful for you, but instead being able to position it as here are the steps you need to take. Right. Like a feasibility study isn't just yes, no. It's here's where you need to develop capacity. Here's what donors are telling you. Here's what um, your elected officials are saying about this project. Right. Like all all the people who are important to the organization. And so we could really say that this is your roadmap for how you get there in five to ten years. Yeah. Absolutely. Have you been a part of a campaign or know of a part of a campaign that failed? Um, oh, let me think. I don't think full failure. Um, I was involved in one where, um, the feasibility study, who was done by somebody else, said, you know, you can raise X dollars. They had, in the few years following, started to implement some of the changes. I said, you know, I still don't think you can get to, you know, pie in the sky, but I think we can raise three and a half million. And they said, well, really, we want five and a half. And I said, well, I can help you raise three and a half. And we raised four. Nice. Which is great. So, like, for me, I, I feel like that was still absolutely a win uh, I said I could raise a certain amount and I raised more than that. So I was <laughs> happy with it. Um, and we also knew that they could, uh, maintain that debt burden, right? Like if, if right. they couldn't get to the full five and a half, it wasn't going to also crush the organization at the same time. But there have been organizations that could not maintain that debt burden. Yeah. Yeah. Totally have been. And, uh, some have had to close because of it. Yeah. They're, they're big projects. I think that that's what we're really trying to lift up here and highlight. And, um, I wish that, you know, much like all the other times we talk about grants and grant applications, I wish funders were a little bit more flexible 
around it. I mean, I understand they want to do their due diligence, but um, it just adds a whole nother level of complexity to trying to determine when funding could potentially come in. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and like you said, it's just, it's, they're exhausting. Yeah. They can definitely take a toll on staff. Well, and this is one of the things that gets me fired up too, is when grantors refuse to do capital grants at all. Like I get, you have a limited amount of time, but if you say you are committed to helping endless homelessness, that means we have to build shit. Right, like, (laughs) or how about like you can't apply for capital funding from them until you've received program funding from them? Yeah, what the hell's that about? I was actually I was just talking to a colleague of mine about this, and this is it came up because of a specific client. But um, through COVID, we know we are losing millions and millions of early childhood slots right now across the country. Right, like so many Mm -hmm. programs have had to shutter. Um, A lot of in-home programs have closed. And so we are, especially when the full workforce is going back, we will have a crisis where there is not enough childcare. And so yeah. there were some local organizations who are, who have a solid program. They're maintaining their that operation, but they're looking to grow in anticipation of that. Well, they're reaching mm-hmm. out to some of these local funders who say that they're committed to early childhood and reducing the kindergarten gap, and they refuse to give to anything. And we're like, we're just trying to renovate so we can add more classrooms here, right? Like we just, we want to be ready for this thing that you keep talking about, that you keep saying you are just as concerned about as we are, but all you won't give us any capital funds. I I don't understand this disconnect between funders and their funding reality. I know. I know. And like you said, it's, it impedes growth and, you know, in, in a situation where an organization is actually trying to have some foresight and plan, um, it, you know, it doesn't allow them to do that. Yeah. And that's fucked up. <laughs> it is. Yeah. So you mentioned that couple, um, which I think is hysterical, that really likes to give money towards capital projects and then name a bathroom. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I do think that's fantastic. But again, this naming um, of stuff creates an even bigger power dynamic in the community. I mean, we, I can think of our community and there's a couple names that are on tons of buildings. Yes, totally. I, you know, I've really actually been struggling with the entire structure of capital campaigns because Mm -hmm. like you were talking about earlier, you know, you start with this quiet phase, silent phase where it's primarily reaching out to major donors who can do what we call lead gifts, like those big, big ones that kind of anchor the campaign. And that that's um, a little bit of a proof of concept before we go out public, right? Like these people right. who are willing to give really significant amounts of money have vetted the campaign, said, yep, it's good. And then we can go out and ask our $100 donors if they want to participate. Right. But that means that our campaign really caters to these major donors and i'm really struggling with how how do we shift that in a way and like we talked about last episode how do we shift that when that is what works right and anything else would be untested and it feels super scary to do something untested in a campaign that is so fucking important 
Right. I mean, because a lot of these campaigns really are what are, they are the vehicle for organizations to scale, mm-hmm. right? So it's a bigger building, so they can offer big, more programming, um, maybe their own building because they've been renting space, um, whatever it may be. And and so they're they're extremely important to the future of the organization. Yeah. But what? Let's just take a moment and just kind of riff for a second on what that would even look like. Well, so I mean, that's so hard. Like, of course, the only model we really have right now is community-centered fundraising, which is about this where you put the community in the midst of all of it. Um, and you know, the one thing I was thinking of is collaborative capital campaigns. Have you ever been involved in one or seen one? No. Tell me what that is. So like when there's um, one joint building that has shared spaces. Mm. And so there's this larger campaign that all the organizations are working around. And so I think that actually might be where we start to see the model implemented is when there are multiple organizations all fundraising for the same building. And you really can put the community at the center of it. And that would be really cool. Yeah. I mean, and really leverage the collaboration between the organizations. Um, and I think in a scenario like that, it's easier to shift that donor pyramid of we're, we're starting with the folks who can give us the big gifts and instead have it be this community-wide fundraising endeavor. But I still don't know the logistics of how that works. Yeah, you know, now that you say it, when I was working down in Denver for an organization, we were looking to create, we wanted to move into a bigger building and expand. And we were looking at some properties and where the building was located was also in a food desert. And so we started talking to other organizations about creating, of doing what you're saying, of having this building that we were in, but it also housed other um other businesses and other organizations that were, you know, providing uh, fruits and vegetables and resources to people in a food desert. It never came to fruition, unfortunately. I think it was a great idea, um, but we could never quite get our arms around it. And it's just that funding piece, right? I mean, when if somebody can come in and make a multi-million dollar gift – how do you get that? How do you make that up with thousands and thousands of hundred dollar gifts? Mm-hmm. Well, that's the, that's the big question. Um, and how we shift our, our mentality around that, our in efforts around it. Um, and even how do we position those multimillion dollar donors so that they still want to give, but they also recognize that they're just a cog in this larger wheel that the entire community is part of. Right. So maybe it's doing all the things that we talk about by unrestricting those gifts, mm-hmm. right? So because um, so much of the time when you're doing capital ca- campaigns, you really are breaking apart whatever you're doing into these pieces that you're then saying, well, you know, for $50,000, $50, you get the kitchen and you can name the kitchen. And for $20,000, you can name the women's bathroom or, you know, whatever, And so maybe it's taking that piece out of it too, of like, you're not giving to one specific thing, you're giving to the whole project as a whole. Mm -hmm. And while we want to appreciate everybody who contributes to it, there's not going to be anybody's name associated with anything. 
Yeah, actually, uh, one of my clients, they're they're much less hierarchical just in their internal structures anyway. Um, pretty flat in terms of like their organizational structure. Um, and so as we were planning, we, we had a lot of conversations about naming and, and what that needed to look like and how to protect them. They have an extensive gift acceptance policy about the kinds of companies they will not accept money from, which was awesome. Um, and so one thing that we said early on was, you know, they were going to do a donor wall, um, had a local artist in line, and every single name was going to be the same size. Hard stop. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, not we're not adjusting it for gift size because we want to show that this is a community-funded project. I love that. Yeah. Well, I, and I'd love to hear from all of you. If you're listening to this and you've been part of a capital campaign um, that has used sort of these unconventional ways of acknowledging donors or soliciting gifts. Um, I want to hear about them. I would love to know how it's being done. So please, uh, you know, email us or chat us or whatever. Um, Find us on WhatsApp. (laughs) Chat us. Chat us. Chat at us. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know. Uh, full disclosure, we have done two episodes back-to-back, so this is our second one. We used to do this all the time, all the time. We're a little bit out of practice, or maybe I'm just out of practice, and so I'm my, my brain is not, it's not firing on all cylinders, but you know what I mean. Get in touch with us. Let us know. You can email us, nonprofitreframe at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook or Instagram where you will continue to see our weekly costume contest. Ooh, my next week is so good. So good. You'll want to see it. Um, And of course, if you have capacity during this time, we know it's a really tough time, but there are certain people that are still thriving and still in a position where they can give. And this is the time to be doing it. So if you have that capacity, please support your local nonprofits by giving and give generously. That's that K-shaped recovery we keep hearing about. Exactly. Thanks, everybody. We would like to thank our sponsors. Mission Launch is a Colorado-based nonprofit consulting firm focusing on fundraising and board governance. You can learn more at missionlaunchco.com. And Jake Walker Music, who provides our theme music. You can find him at jakewalkermusic.org. Thank you so much.